Welcome and thanks for listening to the sermon podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu. The world we live in seems to be full of us versus them, especially here in America. First Pres Assistant Pastor Steve Page teaches today how we Christians should behave and live in this kind of caustic atmosphere. Hello again, everyone. If you missed it at the beginning, my name is Steve Page, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff at First Press. And it is my honor to bring the Word of God to you today as we continue in our Lenten series. And as I said before, it's a time where we travel together and with God in very sober reflection, repentance, and hope towards Easter. And by the way, one of the places I wouldn't mind living outside of Hawaii is Thailand. You see, my wife and I were missionaries there for a while, and it was just so fascinating to live in that culture. You know, as many of you have, who have visited or lived in other places know that it's always so fascinating to learn of the different customs and societal idiosyncrasies of other cultures. One of the more interesting things that I learned while I lived in Thailand was this. Never call anyone a water buffalo. Seriously, never ever do that. You see, when I, I lived in this small town among uh, several houses that were all close relatives, and one day I saw one of them pull out a machete and attack his cousin for such a slur. Now, I'm not talking fist people. I'm talking about a super sharp machete that could just slice a coconut right in two. Now, we in the thin body obsessed West would think that such a remark is insulting because, well, it's referring to someone being overweight or something like that. But that's not how it was taken there. In fact, sometimes being overweight is a status symbol because it's a sign of wealth. Hey, you're overweight because you can afford to eat a lot. So, hey, good for you. But the water buffalo label is different. You see, in that culture, water buffalo is an expression of deep contempt. And in some cultures, contempt via an animal reference is a serious issue because it is to, it is to dismiss a person as something inferior on par with an animal. And when that happens, especially when it's said in front of other people, you have committed a near capital offense. Now, once I learned all this and I saw how that all-out machete war among first cousins took place, I was afraid to reference a farm animal of any sort, even when buying food at the market. I would just see something and point at it and say, you know, I'll have that, just because I didn't want the word chicken to start World War III. You know what I'm saying? Now, we may find the unique words of insult and hostility of other cultures a little odd to our American ears, but unfortunately, our culture is no stranger to contempt and fierce anger. You know, like the tragic scene of watching two close family members wielding weapons of death, so too can we wield words of death to our spouses or our coworkers, our fellow Christians, and as we see and hear so much in the news, to our fellow Americans. Folks, this isn't just sad, it's tragic. It's tragic because of what Jesus calls us up into as a Christian people. You know, Proverbs uh, chapter 12, verse 18 says this, reckless words pierce like a sword, like a machete, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And these next two weeks, I'm going to look at the impact of reckless words and wise words, words that wound and words that heal. Now I'm going to be primarily digging, digging in deep into a small section out of the Sermon on the Mount. This is where Jesus explains to us the characteristics of those who orient their lives around the purposes and power and the values and the character of the kingdom of God. 
And though he brings up more than a few great issues in that Sermon on the Whole, I wanted to focus on just a couple, just a couple, because I believe if we got these right, oh my gosh, we could see so much more of God's best arise in our personal lives, in our relationships, and definitely in our culture. So let me read from Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. It says this, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. That was a ruling council of Jewish people in Jerusalem. But anyone who says, you fool, now check this out, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and sister. Then come and offer your gift. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now in these verses I just read, Jesus particularly laying out how a person of the kingdom of God lives in terms of their heated emotions and their torn relationships. So let me break this down a little bit because I think there's absolute gold in these verses. I'm going to really focus on verses 21 and 22. See, in there, Jesus sets a relational bar so high that it seems to be a bit over the top. I mean, he equates the fierce emotion of anger with that of murder, making the consequence of anger the same as murder. Now, let's be honest, I, you know, to enact capital punishment for murder, we could probably understand that. But anger? Really? Moreover, why is simply calling someone a fool so worthy of hell? Is this a bit of overkill, Jesus? You know, first of all, we've got to understand something here. The word for anger here in, in the Greek, which is the original language of the New Testament, means to be very angry. It means to be enraged. So when this verse speaks of anger, it's referring to the kind of anger of the angry outburst or the fierce, deep, seething anger that we nurse and won't let go of. Now, let me also point out that anger in itself is not necessarily a sin. I mean, after all, Jesus got angry at the temple and, uh, while he was there and toward the Pharisees more than a few times. In fact, I think, I think we've been given the capacity for anger much like we've been given the capacity for pain. What does pain do? Well, pain alerts us that something's wrong and needs to change. Anger can do that as well if handled correctly. For example, it can signal to us that someone's crossed a boundary with us. And then, then we can let that anger move us to lovingly confront someone so the relationship is healed. Moreover, what makes this kind of intense anger in Matthew 5 particularly toxic is when it is coupled with the attitude and the words of contempt towards others. Now, remember these verses in verse 22? Both raka, which is something like, you bonehead, and the, and the phrase, you fool, were in ancient times the Jewish equivalents of you water buffalo. In other words, expressions of contempt, not simply anger, but of denigrating disgust. You see, contempt is a heinous sin because it takes a person of infinite and divine worth and moves them or labels them in a direction of worthlessness. As one writer put it, contempt is an act of denying the human fullness of another, which is exactly why it is worthy of hell, because this is precisely the character of the enemy, of Satan himself. In other words, to demean and denigrate and deface 
any person's divine value is to act in a way right out of Satan's playbook. So when we take on the features of hell and we don't maintain the, the divine value of every human being, that is when we move towards contempt, what happens is we stop opposing demons and we start demonizing our opponents. And then in the end, we essentially create this kind of circular firing squad. We're starting to shoot each other instead of taking aim at our true enemy. Look, let's be real. Is this not what we see and hear every day on TV or online? Americans and even Christians verbally shooting each other? You know, I know in our modern culture, speaking contempt is like a national sport. But we Christians need to understand how absolutely antithetical this all is to the teaching of Scripture. Remember how James wrote it in his, in his letter, in James chapter 3, starting in verse 9. He said this, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same outcome praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can it get any clearer than that? Folks, look, when we desecrate others, we desecrate God, imaged beings, and then we end up desecrating our own faith, and even we desecrate the name of God in our world. Now think about this. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how much radical change would take place in our families, in our churches, and in our culture if we Christians simply lived out four verses, you know, Matthew 5, 21 and 22, and James 3, 9 and 10. We just lived those four verses. My gosh, most of the Twitter feeds and Facebook posts, comments under news articles would just go absolutely blank, wouldn't it? I mean, on a more serious note, psychologist John and, and Julie Gottman did some longitudinal studies on couples. And what they found again and again was this. Now listen up. Contempt is the single greatest predictor of divorce. You know, all those belittling things you say about your spouse, those facial expressions of disgust or sarcasm, hostile humor, or the rolling of the eyes, those reckless words like idiot or stupid or jerk, etc., they all contribute to draining a marriage and destroying a marriage by a thousand cuts. So I cannot emphasize enough how vital the words of Jesus and James and Proverbs 12 truly are and how shattered our relationships and culture will be if we Christians ignore them. Look, here's reality. People are not always good. You know what? I'm not always good. And I hate to break it to you, but you're not always good. But we are always sacred to God. And that little fact changes everything. And I mean everything. You know, Christian theologian, writer, and podcaster Preston Sprinkle drives this home when he wrote this. God loves you because of who he is and because what Christ has done. Not because of you or anything you've done, but because of them. Now, whether you're depressed or suicidal, underweight, overweight, good-looking, ugly, dumb, smart, popular, socially rejected, happily married, divorced, physically fit, physically disabled, funny, dull, and may I add, may I add liberal or conservative, you have won the heart of God because you are human. Do you believe that? Do you, as a Christian, believe that every human has won the heart of God? 
of God. Now, I have a feeling some of you might be skeptical right now because you can think of some pretty horrible people that could not possibly win the heart of God. But let me remind us of that, that little incident during, especially during Lent, I want to remind you of this, that to keep this mindful, that, that, that an incident that really underscores Dr. Sprinkle's conclusions, it's found in Luke 23, verse 34. Now, Jesus is being crucified. He's been mocked, he's been punched, he's been whipped, he's been spat upon, and he is experiencing human hatred, human evil, human contempt at its zenith. Yet, in the very moment, that very moment, where we throw at him our worst, after experiencing the full force of human hatred and savage violence, he looks at that brutal, selfish, violent, contempt-soaked crowd, and he says these words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. If there are more gracious, loving, or affirming words of human value ever made in all of human history, I would be hard-pressed to find it, straight up. See, my point is, when Jesus looks at the hate-filled crowd, he sees more than their wickedness or sin or their evil. He sees people worth loving, people worth saving, people worth forgiving, and people worth dying for. And here's the good news for us. He sees the same when he looks at you and me, even in our most vile and wicked and sinful moments. Pause and drink that in for a minute. Jesus will never stop loving me no matter what. And just as importantly, he feels the same. And we really understand this. He feels the same when he looks at all those people you think are the most vile and wicked and worthless people in the world. You know, as crazy as this sounds, biblically speaking, sin never disqualifies us from love, at least not from the love in God's heart. As Christian writer and philosopher Dallas Willard put it, our relations to others cannot be right unless we see those others in their relation to God. Even in their ruined condition, a human being is regarded by God as something immensely worth saving. Sin never makes us worthless, only lost. Now, this is really crucial to grasp because we need Christians who can see others, others whom we think are despicable, to see them like Jesus does. Not worthless, just lost. I mean, think about it. How else, how else can we win the world to Christ? How else can we begin to see his kingdom come, his will be done through our lives unless we see what Jesus sees when he looks at a hostile and sin-soaked world? So why, given the serious and toxic nature of angry contempt and the amazing example of Jesus on the cross, do we Christians, even we Christians, so easily fall into the trap of becoming so angry and speak and act with such contempt? Well, look, there's a hundred reasons. I don't have time to go through a lot of them. So I'm just going to offer two very powerful but intertwined elements. It may seem odd, but here they are. Dopamine and algorithms. I know that sounds odd, but hang with me. What's an algorithm? Well, it's kind of sort of a computational procedure. 
in, in search engines and in things like YouTube or Facebook or Amazon, et cetera, that are designed to give you more of what you seem to be interested in. See, algorithms try to predict. They try to predict your interests based on your viewing and reading history. So that's why if I'm watching a video on YouTube of like the New York Yankees or something, or I'm watching that, and then on the right side of my screen, I'm gonna see a bunch of videos already queued up that are more videos of the Yankees or some other baseball team or stories of baseball, et cetera, et cetera. Or it's like when you buy those shoes on Amazon. What starts to happen? Well, then you start getting emails advertising more shoes of a similar style, et cetera. Now, just imagine, you're a bit upset about how things are going politically. And you just can't believe that the other side thinks this or they want to do that. And you say to yourself, gosh, these people are idiots. So you go online and you read or you view news and websites or videos with political views that express kind of a similar discontent. Well, the search engine or social media sites, et cetera, in response to your viewing is going to send you more of the same your way. And after a while, you're thinking, my goodness, look at all these articles and news reports and videos that seem to support my view of, rings, view of things. I was totally right. These guys really are idiots. Is this sounding familiar? See, the point is, because of technology, contempt can be highly contagious and so easily embedded in our souls. Now, now, you need to know that this is not simply about technology. Your brain chemistry plays a role as it interacts with technology. Let me explain this. Research seems to indicate that people experience a rush of dopamine, dopamine in their brain when they're processing information that supports their beliefs. Now, dopamine, if you don't know, is a feel-good hormone. It's a neurotransmitter that is associated with pleasurable sensations. So all those articles and videos you click on when, when you're fed them by the algorithm on your phone or computer, it's like getting another hit of dopamine, another hit of dopamine, and it, and it, and it is why we keep watching and reading this stuff. Moreover, dopamine also helps with reinforcement. What that means is this, it motivates the brain to do something again and again. In other words, this dopamine release tells the brain, hey, you know what, whatever you just experienced there is worth getting more of. So in plain English, as crazy as this sounds, it just simply feels so good to hear and thus be affirmed that your foes, that other, uh, that other side, are as irredeemable, stupid, and deviant as you thought they were. Do you see where this is going? Let me make this clear. Dopamine hits are not a bad thing, they're just a brain thing. It's just something that happens, you can't stop it. But we need to understand things like this because if we get a constant feed for weeks, if not months, of one-sided, anger-filled, contempt-laden input, our anger and our low view of the other side will just keep rolling along and rolling along and ratchet up. And then what happens? Well, it becomes an easy step to go way beyond anger to disgust and to utter contempt of the other. And we no longer see such people as simply lost, but downright worthless. As one professor put it like this, she said, as we take sides and lose trust and get angrier and angrier, we not only solidify an idea of our enemy, but also start to lose our ability to listen communicate and practice even a modicum of empathy. Once we see people on the other side of a conflict as morally inferior or even dangerous, 
the conflict starts being framed as, now check this, being framed as not just right versus wrong, but good versus evil. In case you think I'm exaggerating, let me point something out to you out of a 2014 article published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And this is what they found. This is fascinating to me. They found that the average Republican, the average Republican, and the average Democrat today each think their side is good and is driven by benevolence, while the other side is evil. Not just wrong, they're evil, and they are motivated by hatred. And because of those traits of the other, they are the enemy with whom we cannot negotiate or compromise. Doesn't that help explain a lot of what is going on? Now you know why political scientists have found that our nation is more polarized than it has ever been at any time since the Civil War. Because we don't just see the other side as wrong, we see them as evil. So what are some solutions to all this? Well, I'm going to quickly suggest four things that might help us as Christians. So get your pen and paper ready. It's going to be quick. Okay, number one, this. See contempt for what it is emotional heroin. I know that sounds funny, but look, it feels really good, but it is so very deadly. I know that may sound extreme, but don't forget what contemptuous people are deserving of, according to Jesus himself. Remember in Matthew 5, they are deserving of the fires of hell. That's a pretty extreme state. It doesn't get any tougher than that. So in light of that reality, we need to take radical measures, not little tiny things. We need to take radical measures against it. As writer and Christian uh, uh, thinker Arthur Brooks writes about in, in terms of our cur uh, current cultural situation, he says this, what we need is not to disagree less, but to disagree better. And that starts when you turn away from the rhetorical dope peddlers, very interesting phrase there, rhetorical dope peddlers, the powerful people on your side, your own side, who are profiting from the culture of contempt. So I ask straight up, what media sites, what Twitter feeds or news pro programs, etc., do you often drink from that peddle contempt? What if we started to treat such things like someone peddling heroin for the soul? Again, we must be clear, this stuff is deadly. Yeah, it feels good, but it is deadly. It's deadly to your marriage, it's deadly to your family, it's deadly to the church, and it is deadly to our nation. That's one. Two is this. Cease using all derogatory language. I know it sounds kind of easy, but seriously, stop doing it. When I got married, my wife saw that with my kind of rough background that, you know, even though I've never cursed, I would often sound like I was pretty darn close, even as a Christian. So right from the beginning, we covenanted with, we covenanted with each other to never use any derogatory speech toward each other, no matter how heated things got. And you know what? In 32 years of marriage, we have never used words like stupid or jerk or idiot, etc. when we argue with each other. The same thing goes when in treating our kids. We have never used those words towards our kids even when we're angry. We didn't say, gosh, you're so stupid. You're acting like a jerk. Never happened. Now, I'm not patting myself on the back, but why do we practice this? Again, because of what the scriptures say. Reckless words pierce like a sword. They're deadly. And think about it. Think about all the soulful hurt we have saved each other from over the years simply because of that one simple spiritual discipline. So that's two. 
Now, number three, be dead honest about your righteous anger and contempt. Call it what it is. You know, I know we all swear our anger is a righteous anger on par with Jesus clearing out the temple. But can I be honest? In the heated moment, everyone's anger seems righteous, even mine. It's just the way the brain works. Think about it. Have you ever felt deep anger and outrage and contempt and didn't think you were right in that moment? I don't know about you, but I have never in 60 years on this planet ever felt super ticked off and didn't think I was absolutely right to do so. So simply put, you cannot be really angry and feel really wrong at the same time. Won't happen. So that's what we gotta be honest about this. Besides, we Christians, we're not called to simply feel right. We are called to bring what we feel or what we think or what we wanna do to God and seek His view, His heart, his responses to the situation or the people um, that are before us. Amen? And this leads me to recommendation number four. Okay, the last one. Something I admittedly, I recommend often in my sermons, and you know what? I'm going to recommend it again next week, so get ready. Practice the spiritual discipline of pause, pray, and ponder before you're acting or speaking. In other words, give God space and time and attentiveness to change your heart in the moment, especially those heated moments. Look, no Christian I know of actually values demeaning their spouse or their friends or their kids or their coworkers, etc. But when our heated negative emotions are not paused, at least for a moment, and we don't really ponder or weigh or reflect on why we're being so angry and derisive, and when we don't bring those hot emotions to God in prayer to get His input, to draw from His power and His grace, it is far less likely that we will see God's best arise in our words and in our actions. And folks, a Christian is by definition one who seeks to bring forth the best of God in us and into our world in order to heal it. Not split it, but to heal it. But if we don't give God space and time and attentiveness, we will remain entrenched in our angry and heated attitudes and feelings, and we will add to the age of rage. Look, let me try to land this plane here. Let me share an example from my own life that brings together so much of what I've shared today. And warning, this is not a very flattering story. Here it goes. When COVID first broke out early last year, the wonderful people of Hawaii moved into major survival mode, right? We all remember that. Now I know when we hear are threatened with a hurricane or something like that, we all go a little crazy about buying up toilet paper, huh? However, as we all remember, when COVID began, our frenzied buying went way beyond scarfing up all the TP at Sam's and Costco or every other store. I mean, we were buying all kinds of stuff, creating shortages of items like we have never seen on these islands. For example, pasta. Of all things, pasta completely disappeared from every store on the island. It was like 10,000 Italian restaurants suddenly opened up on Oahu and they needed every box of linguine known to man. It was crazy, right? Now, to be honest, some of this panic buying started to tick me off. One day, I went to buy three things, just three things, toilet paper, paper towels, and chicken. I needed to buy some food for dinner for the week. I wasn't buying food for the year. I just needed food for the week because we were literally running out of food to eat. 
So I get in line at Sam's Club, and it's about like 300 yards long. And I'm a little nervous when I see this because I'm thinking, you know, I still got to trust God, though, because, you know, there's going to be enough toilet paper and paper towels and especially chicken for me. Right, Lord? So I'm hanging in there and I'm praying. Well, as I'm getting closer and closer to the people handing out the toilet paper and the paper towels, etc., this husband and wife who are in front of me the whole time, who are walking hand in hand with each other the whole time, suddenly as they get closer to the Sam's Club person, they suddenly line up one behind the other and pretend like they don't even know each other. So you know what happens. So now this one couple got double the goods. They gamed the system. They each got one, uh, one set of toilet paper, one set of paper towels. Look, to be honest, in, inwardly, I really did sneer at them. I mean, they went from being this nice couple to a couple of nimrods. You know what I mean? And I thought to myself, I would never, me, oh, I would never be so selfish or greedy. Which, by the way, reminds me what often goes with contempt is that sense of you're better than other people. And that's what I was feeling in the moment. I would never be so selfish. Anyway, I got my paper products that I needed, thank the Lord, but I absolutely struck out with the chicken. So I then spent I don't know how long going from store to store, like four or five different supermarkets to find chicken. And with every empty freezer I see, oh, my anger just continues to elevate and elevate and elevate. And as my anger increases, the pool of nimrods in my mind gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, people who are sacred to God, created in His image, are all idiots. I don't care what Jesus or James said. People are being jerks. And no longer am I thinking about how to lead them to Christ, or how to serve their needs, or how to heal their pains. Now they're just a bunch of selfish chumps who are putting my family, my family at risk, and they're ruining everything. Do you have a group of people in your mind that you swear are ruining everything? Well, finally, in the very last store I visited, Eureka, I saw the store guy, as I walked back at the back of the store, I saw the store guy put not one, but two big trays of chicken thighs in the freezer. Of course, by now, I've created such a contempt-filled narrative about people in my mind that I said these exact words to myself as I approached the chicken. And I promise, I'm not exaggerating here. I said these things to myself. You know what? Everyone is getting theirs, so I'm getting mine. Yeah, I said that. Reverend Steve Page said that to himself. And with that, I grabbed both trays to put them in my carriage. But you know, just as I picked up both trays, and I feel that, I'm going to be honest, I felt the rush of joy for scoring all that chicken. For some reason, I paused. I paused for a moment before I made another move. And in that momentary pause, I weighed what I was doing. And I gave God space to speak to me. And let me tell you something. I felt it so clearly. It said to me, take only one and leave another one for, the fa for another family. Right then and there, I felt so convicted. I suddenly realized that the purposes and the values and the character of Christ, which I genuinely treasure as a Christian, got totally eclipsed by my anger and contempt and fear, to be quite honest with you. And my actions and attitude in that moment were just plain ugly. Has that ever happened to you? Has your anger ever eclipsed the expression of the very Christian values you actually treasure in your soul? Has irritation or aggravation or just plain rage overrun your genuine Christian commitments that you hold so dearly? Or do they, do they lead you to say or believe or demean others in ways that are just plain contrary to the heart of God? And this is why the words of Jesus and James and Proverbs 12 are not just great ideas to admire. 
They are the very stuff that can heal a soul, a relationship, a church, and a culture. I started out today quoting from Proverbs 12, verse 18. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. My brothers and sisters, in light of these words, in light of God's love for this world, in light of Jesus' words from the cross, in light of Easter, may I encourage you as a Christian in a culture that seems to have an endless supply of verbal machetes and contempt to seek God about how you can become a wise person who brings healing, healing to your family, your church, your workplace, your nation. So what is God saying to you today? Is there some work to be done with God about the fierce anger and contempt towards others, be it a coworker, maybe a family member, an ex-friend, maybe even an entire political party? Or maybe, maybe you have been the target of contempt, a person who knows full well the deep, deep pain of being pierced by reckless words and can use some soulful healing here today. Well, I want to pray for you. And for those of you, well, you just... Actually, what you really need is a fresh start with God. Well, I want to invite you to commit your life to Him in a few minutes. I'm going to pray a very simple prayer that you can repeat after me. You just, just follow me along. Repeat these words as you give your life to Christ. So let's all take a moment to pray and allow God to speak to our hearts. Just close your eyes. Settle your hearts. Take a deep breath. What is God saying to you about being a person of peace in the age of rage? Lord, you know that we live in such a rage-filled, contempt-filled culture. And so we confess that sometimes we have been caught up in it and have felt or spoken or acted with contempt towards people whom you loved and died for. So, Lord, we repent of that and we seek your forgiveness. And, Lord, for those of us who have felt the profound pain of reckless words, we ask for your mercy. We don't want to live one more day crippled by the foolish words of others towards us. Rather, we want to live fully into your words about us, Lord. So heal us, Lord, of the wounds that we may still suffer from. Strength enough to, to become new people, etched, not by words that pierce, but by your unfailing love. Now, for those who want to give your life to Jesus today, just follow me in this simple prayer. Lord Jesus... I need you. I confess the hopelessness of my life without you. Forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Thank you for your deep love for me. And as best as I know how, I commit my life to you. Come and fill me with your spirit today. In your gracious and loving name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, for those of you who pray for the first time to give your life to Christ, I want to encourage you to hit that raised hand button. Just hit that button in the chat area. And when you click on that, a prayer team member is going to be there to get connected with you. Okay, right? It'll come just right up. So just hit that button because we want to celebrate with you. We want to pray with you to affirm this important decision you made for your, uh, for your life. And we also want to guide you to more information that will help you in your new walk with Jesus. So just hit that button. Now, before I give the blessing today, again, let me say thank you to all of you for joining us today. We are so glad that you worshiped with us. And again, if you've given your life to Jesus today, 
hit that raised hand button in, uh, on the screen in the chat area. And if any of you want prayer before you leave our service today, continue to use that prayer button. And remember, if you want to extend the discussion about what we've sung about and prayed about and learned about, you know, then join a connect group right after this service. The link to that is right there in the chat area. Just hit that and you'll be taken right into that forum. And if you're new to our community, that's a great way to get to meet other people. So before we go, please receive this blessing. May the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved even the worst of sinners from the cross, fill you with a deep sense of his love and empower you to be his person of peace in our age of rage so that the love and the light of Christ flows from you and into our families, our communities, and our nation. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us today, and we will see you next time. Aloha. Despite our worst qualities, our rage, contempt, vile language, prejudices, dismissive judgment of others, and all the rest, Jesus still loves you and will always love you. If you'd like to hear this sermon again, you can listen to and download this and other sermons from the First Pres website, fpchawaii.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Normally, we gather on Sundays at our Ko'olau campus or at The Vine in Kaka'ako. But for now, you can find the entire church service streamed online on the church websites, fpchawaii.org and thevinehawaii.org. For our virtual church service, click the online church box at our regular church service times. Sunday morning at 8, 9.30 and 11.11 for First Pres, and Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m. for The Vine. Be sure to check your email for links to sermons, church news and updates, daily devotionals, and our plans to reopen for in-person worship. We hope to see you then. If you have any questions or needs, in the meantime, you can reach the church through the website or just call 808-532-1111. For Pastor Dan Chun and the entire staff at First Prez, I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, God bless you, stay safe, and thank you for listening. This sermon podcast is copyright 2021 and produced by the Media Ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu.